our own ideas, written by primitive people that purport to be the word of God. But this morning, we're going to walk through these passages and see what they say to us about how the word of God gives us clarity to navigate cultural, ideological, and personal challenges. And we'll start in Deuteronomy. Chapter 30, verse 9. In Deuteronomy, Moses is standing on the plains of Moab, giving his final instructions to Israel before they head into Canaan. He won't be going with them, but he reminds them of what God has said and what he expects. And he says, The Lord will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He goes on to say, this command is not too hard for you. You shouldn't have to say, hey, who will go to heaven and bring it back for us that we may do it? You shouldn't say, who will go over to the sea and bring it back to us so that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, Canaan was inhabited by other nations who served a variety of false gods, idols, And God warns that these idols of the other nations would be a snare to Israel. Israel was called to be a holy nation that is set apart from all the other nations on the planet for God's purposes. Don't be like them. Don't live how they live. Don't worship how they worship. You're called to be a kingdom of priests, the nation that will teach all other nations who I am and how to worship me. But they were surrounded by a culture and cultures of idolatry. And instead of teaching other nations how to worship the one true God, they were always tempted to follow the culture and to serve the many false gods. Second Kings 17 says that they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. And they went after false idols and they became false. We become like what we worship. It says, and they followed the nations that were around them. Israel was surrounded by a a culture of ideology, and they didn't or couldn't resist. See, culture is the environment we live in. It is an amalgamation of the people and the language and the religion and the ideas and the traditions and art and literature. All of that is in the stew of culture, and it's not neutral. It slants a certain way, and either it points us to the goodness of God or it stands in direct opposition to it. When I was a seminary student, Dr. Alan Ross made a passing comment in class one day. He said, culture is man's response to sin. And I don't even know if that was true then. I don't know if it's true now, but I've wrestled with that statement. Culture is man's response to sin to sin. Is culture our attempt to deal with the weight of the guilt of our sin? Is it our attempt to find solace, to find beauty, to re-enter Eden, to regain paradise lost, to find structure and meaning and purpose apart from God? 
See, every false god, every idol that Israel contended with, the Baals and the Moloch's and the Asherah and the Milcom and the Dagon, they promised something. A good harvest, fertility, protection. But these were things that God had already provided in his covenant. Look back at passage, uh, verse 9 in our passage. He says, the Lord God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, and in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. See, the false gods weren't promising anything more than what God had already promised. So what's going on? There's just something about us that is pulled toward the other. Parents, you probably have experienced this with, with your kids when you tell your kids something and they ignore it, but when someone else says the exact same thing, all of a sudden it becomes sage wisdom. <laughs> what is that? Well, they said it differently than you said it. No, it's not that. It's just there's always an attraction to something other. Every cultural idol promises us something, and it's usually something God has already made provision for or prohibition against. Idolatry is a hard issue. It's a hard issue because sin is a hard issue. We despise the familiar and we covet the new, the novel, the unknown. If I had that car, that house, that spouse, that job, the acceptance of that crowd, then I'd be okay. Then I'd be happy. Idolatry says more about what we neglect than what we really need. Idolatry is a heart issue, and Deuteronomy hammers that point. Chapter 4, verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through, uh, uh, 4 through 6, the great Shema. Hear, o Israel, Shema Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And in our chapter, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings, that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and that you may live. And right after our passage in verses 17 through 19, But if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but you will be drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. It's a heart issue. Our heart turns away and we stop listening. And we're drawn away to worship other things that are less than God. This is where we find ourselves, a people within a people, just like Israel. We are a kingdom, the kingdom of God, within a nation. We're Christians surrounded by and participating in an idolatrous culture. And I don't know if you noticed, but America has become simultaneously more secular and more religious. So people are less likely to claim a religious faith, but there's a great deal of religious-like fervor surrounding a variety of causes and issues and positions. You ever notice that? See, there's a lot of devotion in our country that borders on worship. How should we then live? 
in our passage, Moses reminds the people that they will prosper even in the midst of a culture of idolatry. They will prosper when they obey the voice of the Lord, obedience. When they keep his commandments and his statutes, observance. When they turn to the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul, repentance. And these speak to, will we obey God's word in a culture that doesn't? Will we observe his commandments? Will we observe his practices? Will we read, study, pray, gather, sing, worship? Will we keep God's word and ways at the forefront of our lives? Will we continually reorient our hearts toward him? Idolatry is a heart issue, but so is faithfulness. And where we have been influenced by the culture, where have we had our hearts drawn to false gods, false hope, false comforts, false righteousness? Holy Spirit, show us in our hearts where we've been drawn away. Grant us a deep and true repentance and reorient our hearts toward your ways and the worship of you. Moses is preaching to Israel and they're surrounded by a culture of idolatry. But in Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing to a church that is battling competing ideologies. Competing ideologies. If the danger of idolatry is our hearts being pulled toward other loves, then the danger of ideologies is our minds being pulled toward other ideas, ideas that contradict the faith. See, there were these teachers, and they were teaching all kinds of ideas and philosophies about God, about the nature of Christ, about how to live, and these teachers were attempting to influence the Colossian church. What were they up against? What does Paul warn them about? He writes about these false teachings in chapter 2. This is a little bit what he says. In verse 1 through 4, he says, hey, I want you to reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Everything that you need, all the wisdom and all the knowledge you need is hidden in him. He says, I say this in order that, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments, things that sound reasonable, that sound rational, that may even be persuasive, but in the end, they aren't true. They're only plausible. In verse 8, he warns against being taken captive by deceitful philosophy based in human tradition and demonic worldly influence. Verse 16, he says, hey, let no one pass judgment on you or question what you eat, what you drink, or what kind of festival you celebrate, or the new moon, or the Sabbath. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you because you don't practice asceticism, because you don't practice this extreme self-denial and self-discipline that you are harming yourself, because you don't worship angels, because you don't see visions. Don't let anybody disqualify you. Verses 20 through 23, don't let anyone impose their religious regulations on you. These are human rules, human teachings that have the appearance of wisdom, but they only promote self-made religion. 
And Paul isn't against philosophy. Paul isn't even against tradition. He's against philosophies and tradition that go against, that point us away from the knowledge of who God is. And he says, hey, they look like, they look wise, they have the appearance of wisdom, but they aren't scriptural, they aren't helpful, they only have the appearance of wisdom. I remember reading an article, giving an example, might have been a decade ago, a long time ago. And the article was written by some well-meaning Christian about how to protect your marriage, how to affair-proof your marriage. And I think it was like specifically like at work. And the advice the article gave, I thought was so crappy. (laughs) This was the advice. Wear your wedding ring. Protected, unprotected. My marriage is in trouble right now. (laughs) Keep a picture of your family and your spouse on your desk. Work your spouse into conversations with the opposite sex. Hey, you want to go to lunch? You know who else likes to eat lunch? My wife. And I know the person was trying to be helpful, but these, it had the appearance of wisdom. But here's the thing. The Bible already tells us how to treat our spouses. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives enough to stay faithful to the vows you made. Wives, respect your husbands. Respect your husbands enough to commit to the vows that you made. The appearance of, of wisdom. The problem has nothing to do with what's on your finger or on your desk. It's within your heart. Here's another example, and I don't know, some of you are, probably remember the, the great debate about dating versus courtship. Was anybody in here devo- involved in that debate? If you're a young person, first of all, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. <laughs> and I remember having this debate, I'm a Christian, we don't date, dating is worldly, we practice courtship. And they say it with this smug self-assuredness like they've just cracked some kind of code. We practice courtship. Here's the thing. Courtship isn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It has the appearance of wisdom, and I'm not against courtship. That's what you're into. But the Bible says, find somebody who loves Jesus and then marry them. That's about it. But they thought that this was the way. We practice biblical courtship. There's no such thing. How should we then live? when we're faced with competing ideologies that seek to delude us, to capture us, to judge us, to disqualify us, and push us into legalism. Paul addresses that in his uh, first chapter, in his letter. He opens the letter by reaffirming their faith and reminding them the truth of the gospel. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it. See, his answer to all these ideologies is to remind them of their faith in Christ, remind them of who they are in Christ, remind them of the gospel truth. Paul says, hey, I know you're hearing some wild stuff 
from other people. But remember, your faith in Christ and truth in the gospel, it is bearing fruit in the world and also in you. And then he prays for them. Verse 9. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for cease to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you have the correct information. I want you to know the will of God, what he wants for you and what he wants from you. How do we know the will of God? He shows us through his son, by his spirit, and in his word. Filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. Application. Wisdom is, is the application of knowledge. It's the ability to see things from God's perspective and understanding, comprehension, spiritual insight, that it would make sense to them. He said, God, help them see and understand who you are and where you're working in their lives. And for what purpose does he pray all this? So that they could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, to live the Christian life, we have to know God know what he says. It's very hard to live the Christian life if we don't understand who he is, who we are in Christ, and what he requires. It's very difficult to recognize false teaching, to recognize unbiblical ideas and competing ideologies and philosophy when we don't know the truth of God's word. To see the counterfeit, you got to know what the real thing looks like. See, Paul knew the power of ideas. He knew that the ideas can be persuasive and subtle and sneaky. They can seep into our worldview and our, into our theology. Whole denominations have been taken captive through the sneakiness and the subtlety of ideas. Well, that sounds good. We should incorporate that. See, these ideas come from inside and outside the church. And sometimes they're reactions to cultural shifts or reaction against the religion of our childhood or teachings of that unbalanced church that majors on the minors or that unbiblical church that has adopted cultural positions and presented them as biblical ones. These ideas come from TV preachers, internet prophets, college professors, popular authors, political platforms, and we are prone to change what we believe, not out of any kind of principle, but to conform to the culture, to do what makes us feel comfortable, or makes others feel comfortable, or to incorporate things that seem plausible, that seem loving, that seem erudite and sophisticated, but in the end, they are useless at best and dangerous at worst. In our quest to appear loving, we become complicit. In our desire to be right, we become cold. In our need to be seen as open-minded, we become convictionless cowards not willing to stand on anything lest we be seen as backward or bigoted. See, these, complete, these competing ideologies are always trying to add something to Jesus. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus this special diet. Jesus plus this observance. Jesus plus... 
They're always attempting to co-opt Jesus for whatever their cause is. And we've got a lot of different versions of Jesus. I've seen European blue-eyed, blue-haired Jesus. I've seen black Jesus with dreads. I've seen Republican Jesus, suburban Jesus. I've seen Second Amendment Jesus. I've seen Border Patrol Jesus. Competing out of the ideologies are always trying to add something to Jesus, to co-opt Jesus for a cause, or just ignore him altogether. It's not important what Jesus says. They're always telling us that we need to know more about God than the Bible teaches, that we need to do more or less than the Bible teaches. We need to be more than the Bible teaches. And Paul is having none of it. He's having none of it. He's saying, hey, Jesus is enough. The word of God is enough. You don't need hidden knowledge that they're pushing. You don't need the new ideologies and philosophy. You don't need these cultural innovations. You don't need to celebrate a certain day, abstain from a certain food or drink, or follow these man-made rules and traditions that are contrary to Christ. You're in Christ. You have everything you need to walk in a manner worthy of of the Lord. How should we then live when we are surrounded by cultural idolatry and we're faced with competing ideologies? And in Luke chapter 10, there is a man that Jesus comes across who is battling a compromised integrity. Moses preached to a nation that was surrounded by a culture of ideology. Paul prayed for the church that was being bombarded by competing ideologies. And then Jesus tells this parable to a man with compromised integrity. Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up, putting Jesus to the test. What shall I do to inherit eternal life, he said. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. A few verses back, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he is thanking God that, that God has hidden things from the wise and understanding and shown them to children. And now Jesus is talking to a lawyer that is an expert in religious law who may have had both wisdom and understanding, but he wants to test Jesus, asking him, what shall I do? And Jesus, as he's prone to do, turns his question back on him. How do you read it? And the lawyer answers correctly, even convincingly. The guy knows his stuff, and then Jesus says, okay, you know it, now do it. And then it's like, uh, the lawyer's feeling kind of conflicted now. I wasn't really planning on, like, really loving my, my neighbor. I was just, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I didn't want to go that far. He says, desiring to justify himself, to make himself right, who, who is my neighbor? So he thought he only had to be a neighbor to certain people. He's looking for an out, some wiggle room. He's trying to figure out who he does and doesn't have to love. And that's what Jesus tells the parable where a priest and a Levite People who work in the temple, people who are supposed to be people of God, they go out of their way to avoid a victim of a robbery. They just go to the other side of the road. See, the lawyer doesn't want to live out what he knows. 
what he confesses. The priest and the Levite don't want to practice what they supposedly believe. In my counseling practice, I hear all types of people's stories. And one of the things that comes up a lot, a lot, is that people have been hurt by Christians in the church. People who haven't lived up to the ideals of Christ. And they tell me their stories about what this church did or didn't do. My dad was, was someone like this. He was involved in a church and somebody stole some money and they blamed it on him. But when they found out who really took the money, they didn't offer him an apology because the person who had took it was, I guess they were more popular or they didn't want to cause a scandal. And my dad, he never went back. He stopped going to church. He would come to hear me preach. And that was about it. See, there's a, there's a danger for us to, to have a disconnect between our heart and our head and our hands. We have the right answers, but the wrong motives, the things we say don't carry over to what we do. And Jesus challenges his lawyer as he challenges us. Don't compromise your integrity. Live by the principles that you proclaim. How should we then live in a culture of idolatry? Devotion. Love the Lord your God, obey his voice, keep his commandments, repent, reorient your hearts toward him. How should we live when faced with competing ideologies? We trust in the word of God, the work of Christ, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And they'll say, well, yeah, but how do you follow that? The Bible is outdated. It's patriarchal. It's racist. It's fantastical. It's backwards. It's bigoted. It's false. And we will say, no, the Bible is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is true. It is trustworthy. It is the word of God. It shows us who God is and what he is like, what he has done and what he requires. It tells us what pleases God and what doesn't. Scripture shows us what love looks like, what justice looks like, what mercy looks like, what righteousness looks like, what forgiveness and redemption look like. It upholds the supremacy of the gospel, the mission of the church. It testifies to the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ. It glorifies the coming of the Spirit. It tells us what has happened, what will happen. It helps us make sense of what is happening. It highlights the sacredness of marriage, the sanctity of life, the uniqueness of male and female, the function of the family, and it lays bare the hearts of men and women, and it shows us we're in desperate need of a Savior. How should we then live when we're tempted to compromise our integrity? We strive to make our lives line up with our lips. We show mercy. We love people. Love is how we treat people, even those people, those people who put pineapple on pizza, <laughs> those people from New York City, those people who right now are waiting for football season, even though they're Tennessee fans, <laughs> those people. We demonstrate God's love and become God's hands in a world that desperately needs him. In Psalm 25, David 
praise. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me into your truth and teach me. And in Christ, God has made his ways known. He has led us into truth and is leading us into his truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. He has given us his Son, his Spirit, and his Word, and it is not far from us. It is very near. It is in our mouth, in our hearts, so that we can do it. How should we then live? We live, as Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would search our hearts. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. Show us where our idols are, what we're relying on for comfort, what we're relying on for provision. Show us the ideologies that have seeped into our theology that are leading us away from Christ and help the confession of our mouth match the direction of our hearts and the direction of our wills. Help us put into practice what we say we believe. Amen.